0: If you would please take your Bibles and to turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 9. That's the portion of Scripture that we looked at last week together, and we're going to continue uh, looking particularly at verse 6 and 7 uh, this morning, but we're going to read together from the beginning Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, a well known portion of Scripture. Um, but one that I think we will do well to spend more time meditating on again this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So far in God's word uh, this morning. Well, we come today to part two. Uh, of of our sermon mini-series, which we started uh, last week in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. If you were not here uh, last week, I would encourage you to just uh, listen to that message sometime during the course of the week, as it really sets the scene for the verses that we are looking at this morning. Last week, we considered mainly verses 1 to 5, under the theme of light of the world, you step down into darkness. And last week we saw that Isaiah was speaking to God's people at probably the lowest point in their history. Certainly spiritually speaking and in terms of their security as a nation, Israel was already being overrun by the Assyrian army and the threat of destruction was now knocking on the door of Judah in the south. And we saw last time that it was into this darkness That God sends Isaiah with a message of hope and encouragement to his people. And the message was: a great light has shone and great joy has come. And it was a message, as we saw last time, spoken in this prophetic perfect, uh, written in our English in the past tense, as something so sure uh, that it was written as if it had already happened. Uh, giving God's people hope for the time when the Messiah would come, when Jesus Christ would come, and he would shine the light of God into the darkness of man's sinfulness and despair. And he would usher in this dawn of an era of great joy, great joy in God as he comes to dwell with men. And Isaiah gave God's people three great reasons for the joy and the hope which should be theirs in that day. Firstly, he said, because their burden of oppression would be removed. Secondly, the tumult of war would end. There would be peace. And thirdly, because God would be with them, for Emmanuel will come. And so, central to this whole passage, as we saw last week, is this idea of the Emmanuel child, the one whom God would send, to address all the problems of mankind. And so today we're going to focus primarily on verse 6, to delve into something uh, of the depth of just who this Emmanuel child will be and what that means for us as human beings today. If you look back at verses 1 to 5, up to now Isaiah has been encouraging God's people with the what, uh, the what of the Messiah's accomplishments, what he will do for them. But now he turns really to the pinnacle of his vision of hope to encourage God's people with the who. Who is the Messiah? Who must he be in order to bring about this great hope and deliverance and joy? So as we come today to verse 6, we consider what God reveals to Isaiah prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ, the child with four names. Now, before we consider the four names or the titles of the Messiah, let's firstly consider what Isaiah says about his coming. Take a look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. Sorry, this is, let me get it on there. Let's go. There we go. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So the first thing that we see about the Messiah, about this Emmanuel child is that he's a child. In other words, we see his humanity. Now, there's nothing too interesting about the first phrase on its own. It's what follows that should make us take a second look. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Suddenly, the, the second phrase should make us take notice. There's something else going on here which is not normally said of the birth of a child. To us, a son is given. So from the start, as Isaiah reveals to us something of this Emmanuel child, we see the connection back here to chapter 7, verse 14, which we read last week. Therefore, the Lord himself... Will give you a sign, Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so what is being hinted at in this initial announcement in chapter seven, verse 14 of the Emmanuel Child is now being more fully explained by Isaiah in chapter nine. In 7:14, we are introduced to a child, a human child, to be born. yet this child will be born. Of supernatural origin. For we read that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And because this child conceived in her womb will be by the Holy Spirit of God, the child will be both man and God. And so will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, coming back to chapter 9, verse 6 we read that this child to be born is going to be given to us by God. He is a gift to mankind from God. So when we put chapter 7 verse 14 and chapter 9 verse 6 together, we're starting to get a glimpse of something much more wonderful going on here than simply the birth of a human child. For this child to be born will be fully human indeed, But at the same time, divine, supernaturally conceived, given to us by God himself. And then Isaiah starts to show us just what the birth of this child will mean for us. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now what's significant here is that Isaiah wants us to see already that this child, this child that's going to be born to a virgin is going to be a ruler. He's going to be a great ruler. Just how great is not yet revealed. It will be revealed in verse 7. But we are told at this point that the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, there's an important connection here back to verse 4 that we looked at last week where the people of Israel were carrying a great yoke of burden. It was the, the burden of oppression under the Assyrian captivity and here they are told that this coming Messiah would, would lift the burden. Verse 6 tells us that this child to be born, this son given to us by God, will carry the burden of authority and rulership on his shoulders. So when we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. As we saw last week, by declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a king that has arrived, and he's declaring his kingdom. And other times in the gospel, just look at the language that Jesus uses. John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we see that the government which Jesus carries on his shoulders is far more than any political or military power of a nation. Even all the nations of the earth combined. No, his authority extends over all things, things in heaven and on earth over people, over rulers, over nations, over spiritual forces, over nature. The government of all things, this child will carry upon his shoulder. Now with that introduction of who this child will be, that will be given to us, Isaiah moves on now to reveal really an incredible Old Testament insight into the person of Jesus Christ. This child has already been called Emmanuel, God with us. And now Isaiah gives him four names or four titles. And each of these titles or names are pairs of words which explain to us the nature or the character of the Messiah. And so in the first place, the first name is that of Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now what we have here in the Hebrew Uh, is somewhat missed in the English because the way we use the word wonderful is usually as an adjective. In other words, it seems to us, as you read this at face value, that what Isaiah is saying is that this Messiah won't just be an average counselor. He won't even be a good counselor. He will be a wonderful counselor. In other words, he's going to be a really good counselor. And Jesus certainly is that and more. But that's really not the point here. The point here in the Hebrew is that the word wonderful is a noun. It literally speaks of the Messiah himself being a wonder. His name will be wonder. Out of this world, that's what it means. Miraculous, supernatural. He's a a wonder of a counselor. Or perhaps we could express it a a little bit better by saying he's a wondrous counselor. Counselor. The the word wonder is speaking of Jesus more than it is speaking about the counsel that he gives. Let me show you how this word is used elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Psalm 89 verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Later on in Isaiah 29, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. This word is loaded. It's already the first title for the child shifts our thinking from the, the realm of humanity, from the realm of this earth into the realm of the divine. This is the realm of God who does wondrous things on the earth. And now we see the second part of, of this first title. He's a wonder of a counselor. This word counselor was used to describe a person of great wisdom, a person with insight into the, the ways and the times of this world who would then give advice and counsel and wisdom, particularly to kings. Kings would surround themselves, well, the good kings at least, would surround themselves with wise counselors. So as we put these ideas together, we see that this child to be born, the Messiah, will be a wonder of wisdom. Wisdom. In other words, he will be a living incarnation of the wisdom and the counsel of God himself in the flesh. So again, it's no surprise. It's wonderful when we come to the New Testament, we see that as Jesus grows up as a young boy, that from an early age, we read that he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. I'm sure you've all at some point, seen a counselor, been involved in counseling, had a friend counsel you, a parent counsel you, how would you describe the perfect counselor? I'm sure we can all speak of bad situations of counsel that we've received, but how would you describe a perfect counselor? Surely a perfect counselor is someone who speaks the truth to you Not harshly or judgmentally, but with great care and kindness. You see, counsel is of no value if it's not true. But truth that comes across harshly and judgmentally hurts and breaks down. Well, listen to how John describes Jesus in John 1, verse 14 to 18. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. What was the glory that John beheld in seeing Jesus? He was full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. The the law brought judgment. It brought condemnation. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him known. Again, listen to the testimony of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is the truth of God. He's the the wisdom of God, the fullness of God's counsel in human form. He truly is a wonder of a counselor. Just to end off this first point, skeptics will often argue that we as Christians are trying to to make too much out of these titles that Isaiah gives to the Messiah, that, that we are reading into them the attribute of divinity which is not there. Well, in the same book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, verse 29, look at what Isaiah calls Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Here we see that the character of the almighty God, Yahweh, is one of a wonder of a counselor. And Isaiah has just declared that this child to be born, this child to be given, is exactly that a wonder of a counselor. Well, the second title which Isaiah gives to the child is Mighty God. Mighty God. This is the Hebrew El Gibor. And again, from Hebrew rabbis to liberal scholars, there have been all kinds of attempts to try and explain away the clear implication that the Emmanuel child, Jesus Christ, is himself God. They claim that this word, El Gibor, can simply mean a mighty warrior or a heroic soldier. Well, firstly, why would we even want to go there in the light of the preceding title, which is clearly making the connection with the Messiah being divine? But let's let Isaiah settle this one for us. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Just the next chapter, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. There it is, all caps, that's Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to El Gibor, the mighty God. Within one chapter, Isaiah is using the same title to describe the child to be born and to describe the Lord of hosts as mighty God. So already we can see how the concept of a divine Messiah, fully God and yet fully man was beginning to unfold in the prophecies of Scripture. Now the question is, did Isaiah have a full grasp of of how this was gonna happen? how the incarnation would take place, that the second person of the Trinity would would be born and take on human flesh? Well, probably not at this stage, but that shouldn't worry us because the real author of Isaiah is the Holy Spirit, and he was not confused about what was being said and about what would take place. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, A single author of scripture, God was revealing his plan of salvation in far more detail than perhaps Isaiah understood at the time, and sadly, far more detail than most people today are prepared to acknowledge. Even the prophet Jeremiah brings these same strands together of the first two titles, uh, and he attributes these to Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Look at Jeremiah 32, verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them O oh, great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts great in counsel and mighty indeed you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind and you have made a name for yourself as at this day This God of wonders this God who is great in counsel and wisdom and mighty in battle and doing wonders and making a name for himself as Yahweh, this God, says Isaiah, is the child to be born to us. And he will be called God with us, wondrous counselor and mighty God. So when we come to the New Testament, how do we see this fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ? This concept of a mighty God, El Gibor, speaks to us of one who is sovereign, one who is all-powerful over all things. You can't be the mighty God if you do not have sovereign power over everything. And we know with Jesus' miracles, raising the dead, casting out demons, even forgiving sins, people said only God can do that. Calming the storm, speaking to nature. Jesus was much more clear in his sovereignty and all powerful nature in some of the things that he revealed to his disciples. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, uh, In the world, yeah, there we go. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Revelation 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 5.5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we looked at that last year in terms of, of what that means. Revelation 17, verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Um, So let me just go. uh, It's moved on to the second half. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Mighty God. Then in the third place, Isaiah wants us to see that the Messiah will be called Everlasting Father. Now we need to be careful here to not confuse what Isaiah is saying about the character of the Messiah with the doctrine of the Trinity, The Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity says that the Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. We have one God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so people have tried to use this verse to disprove the doctrine of the Trinity, of one God in three persons, by saying that this verse teaches that the Son is the Father. But again, we need to look at the rest of Scripture to help us here. Often in Scripture, God is referred to as a Father who looks after His people Israel as His very own children, And it's this aspect of God's nature, his fatherly nature, that Isaiah is now attributing to the Messiah. He will care for and protect and provide for his people as a father does his children. We see this aspect of God's character explained quite clearly in Isaiah chapter 63. Now, Isaiah 63 to 65 is a very clear messianic passage describing the second coming of the Lord Jesus in much detail. And in Isaiah 63, this passage speaking about the Messiah, we have this in verse 16. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. This is language of Lord and Father being attributed to the Messiah. Again, a clear reference to the divinity of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah goes on to tell us more that this Messiah will be called Everlasting Father, Eternal Father. This word eternal or everlasting we need to understand stretches both backwards in time as well as forwards in time. It speaks of continuous existence, eternal existence. Has no beginning, it has no end. And so firstly, backwards, Isaiah is declaring that the Messiah himself is eternal. He has no beginning. And being the Father of eternity, he exists outside of time. Thinking forward, he has no end. He will always continue to be the everlasting father of his children. Now, even as we say these things, we realize that we are speaking about something which can only ever be said of God. And so again, we have an amazing paradox in these verses. Isaiah says that in time, looking forward 700 years from where he was writing, in time, a child will be born. But that child will not begin his existence with his birth, for he will be a son who will be given to us, who's existed from before time began and will continue into all eternity. This child to be born will be called everlasting father. What an incredible insight into the uniqueness of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we turn again to the New Testament and we find this truth being confirmed again and again in the person of Jesus. Look at John chapter one, verse one and two. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The second person of the Trinity existed from the very beginning. But then verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he, speaking of Jesus in the flesh, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, Jesus was born six months after John, and yet John knew that Jesus preexisted him. And so we have John 8, 58, where Jesus said to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And again, Revelation 22, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the eternal, everlasting, always existing God. What about his fatherhood? We don't often think about Jesus in terms of a father, and yet that's what Isaiah says he will be. How is that true of Jesus? Well, Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. In other words, I won't leave you fatherless. I will come to you. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father, you in me, and I in you. Jesus Christ is eternally a father to us who are his children. He saves us, he cares for us, he provides for us, he protects us, he leads us, he carries us. And he who began a good work in us promises that he will carry it on to completion. His name will be called Everlasting Father. And then in the fourth place, we see that Isaiah says this Emmanuel child will be called Prince of Peace. And the Hebrew word for peace hope you know it well. It's the word shalom. You've heard me speak about it often. Uh, It means so much more than our English word peace. It refers to the, the concept of, yes, peace, but wholeness and completeness and security and rest. It's so much more than just the absence of hostility, of military threat. No, it's a state of wholeness and completeness in every single area of our lives. And so Prince of Peace is speaking here of a ruler who will bring this shalom of God, this wholeness to God's people. Last time we saw when we considered that the people dwelt in great darkness, we saw that there was much going on, much more going on than simply war and invasion and exile. But as we looked at the New Testament, we saw that it was referring ultimately to a state of spiritual darkness, Spiritual darkness in which we find ourselves as children of Adam. Darkness due to sin. Darkness due to our hostility towards God. Darkness due to the wrath of God on us because of our guilt. So when we come to this idea of peace and Jesus as the prince of peace, we must not primarily be thinking of peace in terms of this world of peace between human beings, of peace between nations. No, we must understand true peace in terms of our relationship with God. And this peace with God is only possible if our sin is dealt with. It's only possible if you and I are reconciled to a holy God. It's only as you and I are vertically reconciled, brought into peace with with God, that the overflow of that will be horizontal peace with husbands, wives, children, co-workers, nations, etc. The only hope of true peace on earth is if you and I have been made right and at peace with God. And so we saw this last week. I'll just... Bring it up again, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's certainly much more that could be said about Jesus as the Messiah, but hopefully today already you've just seen something from Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus about the incredible nature and truth of who Jesus Christ is. The Emmanuel child is A wondrous counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What a Savior we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Point me to any other person on earth, in history, past, present, or future, who will ever measure up to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You're going to look for all eternity when he is right before you. So as we close this morning, Isaiah ends this prophecy off with great hope and encouragement. Now that he has told us who it is who will accomplish all these wonderful things that he's been speaking about in the earlier verses, he comes back to end off by telling us a few more things just to firmly establish and encourage us in our hope, in our Savior. So just briefly, verse 7 unlike all the other kings who had failed God's people so miserably, this Messiah will be different. Look at verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In my Bible reading plan, uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been working through the book of 1 and 2 Kings. And and what stands out to me as I've read 1 and 2 Kings is this repeating pattern. So-and-so, the son of so-and-so, began to reign over Israel, and they reigned for two or five or 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in the sin which he made Israel to sin. And then he died, and he was killed, and and so-and-so reigned in his place. And it just repeats again and again and again. Granted, there are a few exceptions along the way with a handful of kings who did what pleased the Lord, but they too also died and were succeeded by the next king. But not so with the Messiah. This child who is to come, he won't be a flash in the pan here today, successful for a season, and then gone again like the rest. No, his government, his rulership, his peace. Yes, it may start off small. As we were reminded on Christmas Day, as small as the birth of a baby in a stable. But it will grow, and it will increase, and it will flourish, and it will survive all the opposition which will come its way, and there will be no end to this reign and rule of the Messiah. It will be a worldwide reign which will last forever. And it won't be peace at the hand of a powerful dictator. No, says Isaiah, his kingdom will be established with justice and righteousness. This will be the increase of no other kingdom than the very kingdom of God himself. And it'll start with the birth of the Emmanuel child and it will last forevermore. Is there any doubt left as to who Isaiah is speaking of here in verse seven? Well, if so, let the the angel Gabriel dispel your doubt as he came to bring a message from God to a young virgin in Israel 700 years after this prophecy of Isaiah. And he said to her in Luke 1 Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Um, Okay, we've lost a slide there. Don't worry. We've been confronted by Jesus Christ. He's God's chosen Messiah. He's fully man and yet fully God. And if we really grasp what the Scriptures are saying to us about Jesus today, we cannot walk away with a spirit of indifference. You cannot leave here today and say, So what? Nice talk, Pastor. Pastor. Who cares? That's impossible. Let me end off with Tim Keller, who refers to the impact this realization made in his life. Keller says If Jesus Christ is really God, not just human, but really God, you can't just like him. Listen, my life was utterly changed when I read a couple of paragraphs in John Stott's little book, Basic Christianity, years ago when I was 20 or 21 years old. It changed my life, and I'm trying to pass on the favor. What he said there was that if you look and see people who actually talked to Jesus in his life on earth and heard his claims and realized what he was claiming, there are only three possible ways to respond to him. You either hated him and tried to kill him for claiming to be God or you were scared to death of this lunatic and you ran as far away as you possibly could or you fell down and worshipped him and gave him every single part of your life. You embraced him. You gave him your highest allegiance. You said, you are the reason I'm going to get up every day just to live for you. You hated him, you feared him, or you worshipped him. Nobody just liked him. Nobody just thought, he's inspiring, I like him, I get things out of him, I try to learn from him. Nobody ever said that. Anybody who does say that hasn't heard what Christmas is all about. It's this claim. John Stott was absolutely right. It changed my world. I realized there is no such thing as just liking Jesus. If Jesus Christ is God, become man, you have to worship him. You have to give him everything. End quote. So have you come to realize who Jesus really is? If he is who Isaiah says he is, God in the flesh, have you bowed your heart and your knee to worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? If not this morning, then you are not a Christian. You may think you are, you may have grown up in the church and actually you you like Jesus, but if he's not your savior, then he is still your judge. And you will either spend the rest of your life running from him in fear or trying to kill him in your consciousness. Can I tell you that neither will be successful? What you need today, what you need to plead with God to help you see today, is the great lengths which God went to reveal himself to you. In the person of Jesus Christ, this Emmanuel child, so that you should not perish, but have everlasting life. So won't you turn to Jesus Christ today? Won't you repent of your sin and trust in him that you may come to know Jesus personally as your wonderful counselor, as your mighty God, as your everlasting father, and as your Prince of Peace. As we head into this new year, may the testimony of Tim Keller be true of every single one of us for every day of this year ahead, that we would embrace Jesus, that we would give him our highest allegiance, and that daily we would say, Jesus, you are the reason I'm gonna get up today, just to live for you. May that be true of us. He is worthy of that. Let's pray. In our heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your kindness to your people. Your people of old, in the darkness of 700 BC, to give them this incredible prophecy, this incredible prophecy Glimmer of the hope of the Messiah who is to come. The Lord Jesus Christ that you planned to send from before the foundations of the earth to redeem us and to reconcile us to yourself. When your people were at their lowest, you sent them the sign. And so we are reminded in the book of Ephesians that it was while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins that Jesus came, that he came to us, that he died on the cross to reconcile us with you. Oh Lord Jesus, we worship you, we acknowledge you as fully God and fully man, the anointed one of the Father, the only one who could save us from our sins and give us this eternal life. We worship you, we adore you, we pray that you would help us to live our lives for you as we head into this new year. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.